Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Psalm 126. We're singing Psalm 84 this morning because it is one of those pilgrim psalms. Speaks about how this life is a veil of tears. And yet how being with God's people can turn those tears into joy. This morning we're turning to Psalm 126. It is a psalm of ascent. It is a psalm given to pilgrims who are making their journey homeward. And uh, this psalm similarly uh, is an honest look at the Christian life. Uh, This life is mixed with great blessings and great sorrows. And oftentimes uh, that is our reality as we take one step after another on our pilgrim journey toward our eternal home to be with Christ. And so we're going to look to this psalm because it gives us two reasons to rejoice. You'll hear in this psalm, even as we're given these two reasons to rejoice, the reason why we need God's word to stir up that rejoicing within us because it likens our lives in this world to sowing with tears. Let's give our careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word. This is Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. This is the word of God. Proverbs 14.13 says, Even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Christian life is a life of mixed emotions. Many years ago I went to a friend's wedding Obviously, it was a time of great joy and happiness, but it was also a time mixed with sadness. It was, in a way, bittersweet. Why? Well, only days prior to that wedding, the bride's grandfather suddenly passed away, and everyone had anticipated his great joy as he would watch his first granddaughter get married. Instead, while that wedding was a joyous occasion, while there was still much rejoicing, it was mixed with a particular sadness due to this grandfather's passing. In many ways, this is a concrete example that is a small snapshot of the Christian life. While there are so many reasons for each of us to rejoice, this life is still mixed with trial and tragedy. While each of us is blessed in Christ abundantly, we still live a life filled with disappointment and difficulty. We have been reading through the book of Job in morning worship. And Job was a righteous, God-fearing man who had it all. 
He had it all, that is, until it was suddenly taken away. His suffering was so great that his wife said to him, curse God and die. His friends all abandoned him, assuming that his suffering was due to some sort of unrepentant sin. Such was his suffering that he was completely abandoned. And yet even in those dire circumstances, Job was able to see by faith that his Redeemer lives. Even though his life was full of tears, he was still able to lift his own heart and hide himself in God. An honest look of the Christian life reveals, God's word reveals, that it is a life of mixed emotions. Listen to Psalm 2. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Right there, we are commanded to live with a mixture of emotions. At first glance, it may seem as though those emotions are somehow contradictory. How can one rejoice with a trembling fear? Would not fear and rejoicing be antithetical or incompatible? Well, obviously, because that is a command from God's word, the answer is no. But I suspect you already know this. Whether or not you have spent any time intentionally considering this idea, you already know it in your own experience. Your Christian life has been mixed. It has been a mixture of various emotions. So, How are you doing today? How would you answer that question right now? This past week brought stark reminders to the Christian community that we live in a fallen world. Perhaps you've answered this question already this morning. Maybe somebody asked you as you were already coming in this morning. How did you answer it? Are you doing well this morning? Are you encouraged and happy? Or are you discouraged or suffering? Are you fearful? How would you answer that question, and would you answer that question in perhaps a mixed way? You see, it's often difficult to answer that question, how are you doing, particularly because the Christian life is a life of mixed emotions. How am I doing? Well, that depends on what you are really asking about. Am I getting along from day to day? Well, yes, I am. But am I also weighed down by present trial, disappointment, or difficulty? Well, the answer to that question may also be yes. Just look at this psalm that's before us this morning. In this psalm, we are taught to lift our voices together and to say we are glad, present tense. We are glad. And yet, at the very same time, we are taught to sing these words as we live within a context that is described as sowing with tears. These things are mixed. We both sow with tears and yet say and sing, we are glad. And so the Christian life is an amalgamation of both sorrow and joy. It is a mixture of suffering and rejoicing. But again, I suspect you already know this in your experience. You already know this because of the way that God has ordered your life in this world. We sang a moment ago from Psalm 84, which characterizes this world as a veil of tears. Well, since this is the reality in which God has placed us, since this is the way that God has designed our lives, the question becomes, how do we live our lives in this world? 
knowing that we will be abundantly blessed in so many ways, and yet knowing we will also face trial and tragedy, knowing that we will experience very great and wonderful seasons in life, but we will also face other seasons filled with disappointment or difficulty, how are we to walk by faith? How are we to continue on the pilgrim journey without giving up? How are we to live our lives to the glory and praise of God? Well, Psalm 126 teaches us how. And here, primarily, this text gives us two reasons to rejoice. So let's begin with the first. First of all, we see that joy builds upon the past. Joy builds upon the past. Look at how this psalm begins. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Did you notice that the psalmist didn't actually describe the restoration? He didn't actually describe what took place. Instead, he only described the response that we as God's people have to that restoration. Look at this response. First of all, the psalmist says it was dreamlike. I think we've all had those experiences in which we are so surprised and so filled with wonder that we feel like we are dreaming. We even have a common expression for these times in life. We say something like, pinch me. Because I feel like I am dreaming. Well, this great restoration work of God, of which Psalm 126 sings, was so wonderful that it simply seemed too good to be true. God's people were astonished at what he had done for them. They were saying, pinch me, because this seems too good to be true. Second, this dreamlike experience was so incredible that it brought about audible expressions of joy. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Have you ever experienced something so wonderful that you just couldn't contain yourself? Have you ever known God's grace in a way that you just abounded? Joy came out of your mouth. Have you ever experienced something so amazing that you had to just sit back and laugh? Have you ever known a joy so powerful That it came out of your mouth with shouts of joy. Well, third, this dreamlike experience that brought about audible expressions of joy, it was so remarkable that even others could not help but comment. When this great restoration was witnessed, even others had to exclaim, saying, The Lord has done great things for them. The first two verses of this psalm teach us to remember because joy builds upon the past. Do you remember this great restoration work of God? Do you think about it? Do you meditate upon it? Do you live today in light of that great restoration work of God? Do you remember those times in which you had experienced the grace of God so much so that it was dreamlike? When God's grace simply seemed too good to be true? Do you remember those times when you were moved by God's grace in your life when you could not be contained and you simply had to open your mouth and give praise to God? Do you remember what it was like when other people saw the work of God in your life or in another's life and they couldn't argue with it? They instead just had to say, God has done something great. 
Well, what was this work of restoration? What could this be? Many of the psalms, psalm titles place the psalm into a specific historical context. We can think of Psalm 3. It tells us that it was written when David fled from Absalom, his son. Other psalms will provide enough detail within the psalm that we can easily tie it to its original context. We could think of Psalm 51 regarding David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Well, this psalm is unique in that it neither places this psalm into its historical context by way of its title or its details. And it seems as though that's intentional. No doubt it was intentional. It may be that this psalm was written when God's people had been brought back from Babylon because that was certainly a great restoration. We might also think about how this psalm could have later been written, looking back upon when God redeemed his people out of Israel. Both of those events were vivid events when God dramatically delivered his people. It may have been something else. Just think of what it would be like if we were living in captivity. When God suddenly decided to deliver. Imagine the joy and the praise that would fill all of our hearts Imagine the joy and praise that would flow out to others if God rescued us from slavery and brought us back into our own country. Imagine how neighboring nations would see that great act of God and they could not help but comment. Well, both of these events, as great as they are, both that restoration out of Egypt and that restoration out of Babylon, they were but faint shadows of a far greater restoration. When I was young, my parents were close friends with a couple before the husband came to know Christ. And during those early days, this man was very, very mean. He was extremely hard for anyone to be around. And he had the worst reputation because of his uncontrollable temper. Anything could set him off in a moment. One day, God suddenly intervened into this man's life. And by the Holy Spirit's work, he came to conviction over his sin and misery. And he was able to also see that Jesus Christ is the mercy of God for even the worst of sinners. And on that day, my parents' friend was gloriously broken by the grace of Jesus Christ and then gloriously rebuilt. The turnaround in this man's life was truly amazing. That mean man suddenly became the most friendly and loving person you had ever met. The difference was like night and day. He was no longer angry and bitter. Instead, his bright smile was filled with laughter and his mouth was literally overflowing with the praise of Jesus to anyone who would hear him. Now, this man's conversion occurred before I could remember it. I only knew this man after his conversion And so I remember talking to my parents one day after this man had visited our home. And I was telling my parents about how I thought he was the happiest and nicest person that I had ever met. Well, my parents were eager to tell me about how it was the gospel of Jesus that powerfully transformed that man. And it wasn't only my parents that could testify to that. There were so many others that looked upon this man and they say the Lord has done great things for him. Well, you don't need a dramatic conversion experience to sing this psalm. No, you only need to recall that great restoration of King Jesus. 
Because it was in Christ's coming that he restored the fortunes of all who belonged to Zion. When did the Lord restore the fortunes of Zion? It was when he sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might not even remember a moment in which you were converted. But that does not diminish in even the slightest degree that your fortunes have been restored by Christ. Brothers and sisters, joy builds upon the past. And so no matter your present circumstances, we need to remember what Christ has done. We need to remember what Christ has done right alongside the fact that we once deserved different things. We have been given so much in Christ. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 calls us specifically to remember Paul writes to believers and he says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Which means at that time you did not have the promises of God. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. Paul says, remember this fact. He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, which means at that time you were once a child of wrath because the wages of sin is death. Paul says, remember, you were once a sinner on the way to eternal torment. But then God gloriously intervened by the blood of his own son. God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ And he has raised you up and he has seated you with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to you. Well, that is why this song teaches us to sing. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Our joy builds upon the past. Think about this psalm being sung at different points in redemptive history. Now, again, it may not have been written yet, but we might imagine the Israelites singing this psalm out in the wilderness. There, their circumstances were very, very difficult. They were living in a desert wasteland. And yet they could together look back upon their slavery in Egypt and say, Do you remember what it was like when the Lord intervened? Do you remember what it was like when God sent Moses to be our Savior? Do you remember what it was like when we were all rejoicing together because God had powerfully delivered us out of our slavery? We might also think about the Israelites when they were brought back from Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem, but they returned to rabble. They returned to something that needed to be rebuilt. No doubt they too marveled at God's work in the past. They too could encourage one another saying, do you remember what it was like when God brought us back? Do you remember what it was like when God delivered us? Well, at both points in time, God's people needed to look back because joy builds upon the past. Both were in present circumstances, one in a desert waste and the other in a rebuilding effort. Both were in circumstances that were fraught with trial and difficulty. And so God gave him his word to say, remember the past. Remember what I have done for you. And this is a fitting analogy for your life right now in this fallen world. 
If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed out of your slavery to sin. The Lord has truly done great things for you, and you have reason to be glad. But as this psalm recognizes, you still live in the time in between. The word of God is honest about our present circumstances. You are living in that age that is characterized by those words already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Jesus has come and he has defeated sin, death, and hell. This has already happened, but we do not know or experience the fullness yet. You have been saved from your sins. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness. You have been brought into the glorious kingdom of God's beloved Son. But you still live in a sin-sick world. And you still live in this body of death. And so while you have begun to experience so many incredible blessings because of the gospel of Jesus, so many are still not yet. And your experience is mixed with life in a fallen world. Well, that is why this psalm gives us two reasons to rejoice. We absolutely need to look back. We need to remember what Christ has done for us, but we also need to remember what awaits us. Joy builds upon the past, but joy also borrows from the future. Joy borrows from the future. The final two verses... The final verses of this psalm use two vibrant pictures to help us understand both our present set of circumstances and the future that is promised to us in Christ. So we'll look at both of these. How are we to understand our lives as Christians in this present world? Elsewhere in the word of God, we are given analogies like that of a pilgrim on a journey or as an exile that here has no permanent home. Well, here in this imagery of this psalm, the first image is that of a very dry desert. The Negev was an arid region in the southern part of Israel. The Negev was not choice real estate. It was no place to build a home. And yet, here the psalmist understands or likens our lives in this world to life in that desert. It is a harsh place and certainly no place to settle down. Second, this psalm also uses the imagery of a farmer sowing his seed. Unfortunately, that imagery is harder for all of us to relate to, but you can really get the idea still just by thinking about it. Anyone who has seen anything like this sort of labor knows that it is both difficult and that it requires faith. Just think about it. If a farmer is going to sow sow his seed, he must first begin... By preparing the soil. He's got to do the hard work of plowing. And then he must take what remains of all that he has. And instead of using it for food. Again you could eat seed. It's a a food source. Instead of eating it. He takes it and he throws it into the ground. Hoping for a harvest. This sowing requires both hard work and faith. In order for you to sow that seed, you prepare the soil, you tend to the crop all summer long, and then if all goes well, it will multiply and give you a bountiful harvest. But as many farmers know, sometimes there's insufficient rain. Or there's something like a heavy hail that destroys the entire crop. This is why sowing requires both hard work and faith. 
Well, this is what God's word is comparing our lives in this world to. It is sowing. And it is often sowing with tears. Since this is our lot in life, how do we live the life of faith? Well, first of all, this psalm teaches us to pray. Look at verse 4. It teaches us together to make this wonderful request. It is a great request. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negeb. That is a tremendous request. That is asking for much more than we might naturally consider asking for. Nobody living in a desert prays for it to become a flooded stream. There are a few things that we need to notice about this request. Number one, it is God-given. This request, which seems to be asking for maybe too much, is given to us by God. God places these words into our hearts and into our mouths, and he teaches us together to come and to cry out to him with this great request, Lord, do something great. Notice, second, that this request is corporate. This is something in which we all share together. We are not praying for something individually. Not do something great for me, it's, Lord, do something amazing for all of us as your people. This is something we share in, and the reason is, is that the Christian life is communal. It is collective. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one part of the body is blessed, we all rejoice. The Christian life is corporate. This is the way that God has designed our lives, and he gives us this prayer request that we might hope in it together. But third, see here how God teaches us not only to pray for, but to expect great things. Again, I think... A normal prayer, a human prayer, one that would fit human logic might be, Lord, give us a meal in this desert. Lord, provide for us just what we need today. But look at the language of this request. Restore our fortunes, it begins. But how? To what degree? Like streams in the Negev. Like rivers which suddenly flow Through the desert. Now I hope you have seen one of those videos that shows this happening in somewhere like Africa. In one of those great deserts where suddenly the heavens open up and release torrential rains upon the desert. What was before unbearably dry suddenly transformed. Have you ever seen the before and after? The dry desert suddenly becomes a bountiful garden. Well, it is with that imagery that God teaches us to pray for him to do once again something as shocking as that transformation of the desert. Here God is teaching us to cry out together for something as unimaginable as that first time in which he made us feel like we were dreaming. God says, look back to Christ's first coming and pray for me to do something even greater. So what are we praying for? What is it that could possibly compare or even exceed that first blessing of Christ's coming? 
How does this God-given prayer teach us to borrow from the future? Well, this prayer is teaching us together to cry out, to long for the return of Jesus Christ. That is the prayer with which we are equipped in this psalm. And this is to be the heart cry of God's people in this age. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because we live in a desert. And here we have no home. Here we will sow with tears. And so our Savior, loving us, equips us with this promise of his return. In fact, it is Jesus who leads us in singing this psalm. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, not in a way that we might comprehend, but in ways that are far and above, far above and beyond what we might imagine. Brothers and sisters, joy builds upon the past and joy borrows from the future. You need to look back. You need to remember what Christ has done for you. But you also need to look forward. You need to borrow joy for today from the future. Because when Christ returns, it is going to be so incredible that this imagery of a desert turning into a garden won't even compare. It will be a faint reflection of what the reality will be. When Christ returns, he is going to gather together all of his people and he will immediately put an end to all sin and suffering to all conflict and contention, to all disease and death. He is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. And you will never again know suffering or pain. You're actually going to look back on this life and say, that felt like a dream. Because the fullness is the reality. And that is why this psalm teaches us To carry this cry from Jesus on our lips throughout this pilgrim journey. Our hearts should cry together, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. So how often do you think about what Christ has promised you? How often do you think upon what Christ has promised you with each other. Again, this whole psalm is corporate. In 1 Thessalonians 4, God, God's word reminds us of the fact that the Lord Jesus will return. It's a beautiful text. It's uplifting. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead, will, dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is our hope. That is what we are longing for. But then Paul says, God's word says, therefore encourage one another with these words. Are you encouraging your own heart with these words? Are you encouraging the heart of another with these words? How often do you speak of Christ's coming to each other? Because this psalm says that is the cry of our hearts in this age. 
Well, after singing this God-given request, we are also taught to sing and to remember a particular promise. If your Bible's still open there, you can look there at verse 5. This is the promise given to us as God's people. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. We need this promise. Jesus compares the Christian life to a narrow way that is hard. He says, you want the easy road? You want that wide road? It's there, but it leads to destruction. The Christian life is a narrow way that is hard. Now God's path, the path for God's people, will be marked by tears. But here God's word says that in the end, the sure promise of Jesus is that it will all be absolutely worth it. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I hope you can hear that the joy does not correspond directly to the weeping. It far surpasses the weeping. And you need to remember this whenever you are driven to tears. Whenever you shed these tears while sowing for the sake of Christ's kingdom, you need to remember that Jesus has promised you an abundant reward. Your tears... As hard as they are right now, your tears will be turned to shouts of joy. Your crying is going to give way to a joy that you cannot compare. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 saying, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, Paul is not saying there that your suffering in this life is indeed light or momentary in terms of this world. No, it's crushing. And sometimes you don't know when it will end. But Paul says when you get to eternity, you're going to look back And say, light and momentary. Because glory cannot be compared. Brothers and sisters, it is as if the Christian life runs on two rails. Just like a train, boys and girls. You know how a train needs those two rails on which it runs. So too the Christian life. And one of those rails is God's glorious acts of grace in the past. What Christ has done for us and the other is God's glorious acts of grace promised to us in the future. It is Christ's return and all that will follow from that. And this is how we live the Christian life to the glory and to the praise of God. The Christian life is a life of mixed emotions. There are so many wonderful things given to us by God for this life. And yet there is also sorrow and grief that comes and mixes in. And so, in order to walk the Christian life, in order to persevere, all of our suffering and all of our sorrow needs to be put in its proper place. Because it is always bookended by the first coming of Christ and his return. So notice how our psalm ends. 
for five verses of this psalm, the language is corporate. We, our, and us. But then in the final verse of this psalm, verse 6, it's suddenly singular. He and him. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That verse is first and foremost about Jesus. And the reason why we can sing so confidently that promise of verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy, is because Jesus fulfills and will fulfill verse 6. He who goes out weeping. Jesus is the sower. He goes out weeping. Even today, bearing the seed for sowing, he shall come home with shouts of joy. He shall come home bringing his sheaves with him. We're going to consider this in greater detail, Lord willing, next week. But for now, I need you to note Jesus' solidarity with you as his people. When Christ's people are sowing with tears, he is not far off or aloof. Although we know that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, we need to know that he is also intimately Involved in each of the lives of all of his people. And so even as you sow with tears, you need to know that Christ is there with you in that sowing and in the tears. Because the Lord, the Lord Jesus is the sower. Again, we're going to consider this in greater detail, Lord willing, next week. But for now, just hear how closely Jesus identifies with you as his people. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is ruthlessly ravaging the church. And Jesus appears to Saul on that road to Damascus, and he asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the church. Saul was dragging away men and women and locking them in prison and having them killed. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus promised his people, his church, he promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so you need to know that as you continue in this life, sowing with tears, that Christ is with you in your suffering. He experiences everything that you are experiencing right alongside you. So listen again to how this psalm ends. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The final words of this psalm speak of one who will finish his sowing with tears. And then gloriously return with his arms full of his harvest. Well, dear saints, understand and believe that those words sing about Christ carrying you. You are his harvest. These words are about the way in which Christ will return to take you to himself. 
And so you can persevere in the Christian life. You can continue in your service to Christ, though it will be accompanied with tears. You need to know that at every point Christ is with you and he is for you and that he has fixed a day to return. And in that day, he is going to turn those tears into shouts of joy. So brothers and sisters, hold on to Christ by faith. Believe his words and his promises. Take time today to renew your joy by building upon the past and by borrowing from the future. Remember that Christ has come and he has given his life as a ransom for your sins. And then a day is fixed when Christ will return. And then you will see that all of your sowing, though accompanied with tears, it in the end will be absolutely worth it. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for giving us this, your word. And we thank you that this word is living and active. It is unlike any other book. Lord God, we thank you that you give us your word to encourage our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to build upon the past, to look back and to remember what you have done for us in Christ, and also then to borrow from the future. Lord, we know that this world is accompanied with trial and tribulation. This world is filled with disappointments and difficulty. And yet you have given to us yourself And so we ask that you would help us by the singing of this word to rejoice. That even as we continue sowing in tears, that we might be able to be those who lived well with those mixed emotions. That we might be those who can say, sowing with tears, we are glad. As we look back to what Christ has done and as we look forward to the promise that we will, one day sh- uh, uh, we will one day cry out, we will shout with joy. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with hope in believing as we look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ's return. As he comes to gather us to himself and to return, bearing us up in his arms. We thank you that this harvest is sure. That Christ has accomplished our salvation and because he has accomplished our salvation, that good work that he has begun, he will certainly carry it out to completion. Lord, give us faith to believe. Give us faith to put one foot in front of the other in this Christian life. And may we encourage one another with these words. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together.